Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 86, and we left off with things heating up along the Orange River after hearing about the arrival of the 1820 settlers, and back in Cape Town, there were moves afoot. Governor Lord Charles Somerset was on long leave on sabbatical, if you like, leaving Sir Rufain Duncan in charge as acting governor. Perhaps Somerset would have been better off taking his holiday in sunny southern Africa, because there was big trouble brewing for him. There must have been something about the Cape or Cape Town, because he'd been indulging over the years shock in corruption and nepotism. It had become a favourite sport of the VOC Dutch officials for a couple of centuries, and Somerset, while ostensibly reducing corruption, was playing fast and loose with ethics. Duncan was not Somerset. He was motivated and focused. That's what happens when you're a technocrat and your beloved wife dies. Duncan had barely decided to create the new town in Algoa Bay called Port Elizabeth after his departed wife, when he began to organise the colony. It was still 1820, and Duncan wasn't messing about. He was restless and grieving for his recently deceased beloved and found consolation in responsibility. The first thing to note is that he didn't see himself as Somerset's deputy. He saw himself as the emissary of the state. Furthermore, Somerset was a Tory conservative, and he was what's known as a Whig. We don't have enough time for an exhaustive explanation, but let's just say that by this time in British history, the Whig program included the supremacy of parliament over monarchy, the concept of free trade, the abolition of slavery, equal rights for Catholics, and a sympathy for nonconformists, although they were very inclined to support rich landowners. They were what you could call the precursors to liberals. So naturally, he peered closely at Somerset's Cape Town lifestyle. He did what we'd now call a lifestyle audit, feared by contemporary politicians, and for good reasons, because like with contemporary politicians, Somerset had been a very naughty boy. Duncan hurried along to Government House and was horrified first by the budget. Lord Charles had funded a summer house in the cooler Cape Peninsula, a villa on the Atlantic coast, think Landadno or Camps Bay, and just because he felt like it, a shooting farm outside town where he could shoot wild animals in his spare time. Ah, the life of the colonial governor. Well, someone had to do it, you know. First things first, Duncan ordered the large number of soldiers seconded from their military duties who served as functionaries at these vast regal lodges to return to their duties. Then Duncan opened up the much-beloved and celebrated gardens established by the VOC and closed by Somerset, and the public loved him for that. Somerset had taken these gardens over and used him to feed his considerable stable of horses. The public filed back into their gardens once again. Then Duncan turned to the vast array of Somerset's spies. These had been hired by him, who confused intelligence gathering, with tittle-tattles. So Duncan fired them all, preferring to gather his intelligence through the usual channels. Turning his gaze north, Duncan alighted on the large official farm which Somerset had given himself on the frontier. Remember the VOC had also delighted in giving themselves the best land, and Somerset had copied some of their greedy ways, selling the beef from his own farm to himself in classic backhanded Southern African political tradition. Duncan was also planning to shut down this farm and sell off the land, but would he manage all of this before Lord Charles returned from his holiday? We'll find out shortly. 
Probably the most important change that Duncan instituted was really a sort of revolution. He reversed the prohibition of trade between the Amakosa and the colonists on the Eastern Cape frontier. He initiated commercial trade fairs where both sides would arrive at a specific time and day, usually on Sundays in Grahamstown or Saturdays, then exchange hides, ivory, beads, pots, knives, and a host of other goods. Often the main collateral for these trades was hemp, for ropes, not necessarily for smoking. Watching these changes with open mouths were the missionaries. They realized that Duncan was a new man, and particularly the London Missionary Society's Dr. John Philip now recognized the acting governor's anti-slavery philosophy. What Philip really wanted, more than the right to head east and try to proselytize the Amakosa, which Somerset had rejected, but the right to head up the Orange River, or rather to send someone by the name of Robert Moffat up the Orange. So folks, there are a few names we need to remember in this vast saga of South African history, and this is one we really must remember. Robert Moffat's effect on the entire subcontinent can't be underestimated, as you're going to hear. He's forgotten about these days, but after you hear the full story, you'll probably agree his reach extends across the centuries like a religious bungee cord. Moffat had visited the area north of the Orange around Lataku, that huge town of roughly 10,000 people, but the British had refused to allow Moffat to remain there as a missionary. The exact spot is close to where Kuruman is today, and the southern Tswana people lived there, a people whose clans stretch through to what is now known as Botswana. By July 1820, Dr. Philip had formally requested that the LMS be allowed to spread the word, so to speak. After some toings and froings, Duncan invited Dr. Philip to dinner at Government House in August 1820. At 11 p.m., and after a good few glasses of wine and a meal, Sir Rufain rose from his seat and took Dr. Philip by his hand and said, I am satisfied. I shall write a note to Colonel Bird tomorrow morning, recalling the order. Colonel Bird, as you know, was the colonial secretary. The order was, of course, banning missionaries from living amongst the Botswana. For other men of the colonial bureaucracy, Duncan's announcement that he was lifting this ban was like a bolt from the blue. Jacob Kyler, Judenhag Landrost, he of New York origin, was shocked. He'd been anti-missionary ever since James Reed had impregnated a coy teen he was supposed to be blessing. Reed was back in Cape Town, dishonored and distrusted. Kyler wanted missionaries to work with the colonial authorities, but Dr. Philip wanted them to be independent. For those living along the Orange River and the Eastern Cape, this change of heart was a momentous moment. A whole new group of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed missionaries would flood into the territory, of various denominations, of course, into the Amakosa land, ready to convert the entire people of Chawe, the Rarabe, the Tlaleka, the Amatembu, and further north of the Botswana, the Tlapping. Shortly afterwards, Dr. David Livingston would head out, and his stories are legendary. Robert Moffat, meanwhile, was already in Latakou, together with John Campbell. They were touring with a mind to future mission stations and were worrying about the clapping in particular. Reed had started preaching there before being dragged back to Cape Town to face the dishonorable music, so now Moffat had replaced him and was determined to make Christians of them all. Because Latakou was so vast, all who visited knew that if they managed to convert the clapping, then people beyond into the interior of southern Africa, the subcontinent, would also get the message. It was the route both to the interior and to the souls, they thought. And indeed, David Livingston was to set off for the interior from Latakou in a few years. 
John Campbell, who we met long ago, remember he who kept a journal of the earlier trips in 1813 was a kind of frontier missionary. Moffat had actually ensured that Campbell's attempts at protecting Reed had failed. Our friend Robert wanted Reed to atone for what he'd done, impregnating a member of the flock. Reed, in turn, warned that Robert Moffat was not the goody two-shoes he pretended to be. Just as an aside, and to show you how history is not for beginners, it was one of Robert Moffat's sons, who was also a missionary, who eventually betrayed Indabella chief Lobangula into signing a treaty that handed his country to Cecil John Rhodes, the country that became Rhodesia. But that's another story. Dr. Philip wanted the treatment of the Khoikhoi to be front and centre in any future government action. He was shocked by how Jacob Kyler allowed the Trek boys to lash and generally mistreat their slaves. His newfound mission was basically a revolution. At least, that's what we'd call it today. He'd say, The Hottentots are acknowledged to be a free people. In an instant, the doctor had embarked on his determined commitment to ensure that the civil freedom of the Khoikhoi would be practiced instead of being acknowledged. And at the same time, his convivial times at Government House in Cape Town were over. Acting Governor Sir Rufain Duncan had set off a social explosion. Observing all of this was what Noel Mostet, the historian, calls a seething watchdog, Lord Charles Somerset's own son Henry. He was now acting Landrost in Grahamstown. Somerset's son was defined as a not overly bright military man, his education much neglected and blunt in his manners. Henry was leading a pack of mules along a bridle path above Grahamstown when Sir Rufain Duncan had first literally bumped into him. Henry had shouted at the acting governor and raised his horsewhip over Duncan's head, who promptly placed young Somerset under arrest for breach of military discipline. Henry asked Secretary Bird to help, but he refused, and then Henry was fired as acting Andros. What my father will say to all of this I know not. I think he will go mad, hinted Henry, which is exactly what happened when Lord Charles arrived back from his long holiday in November 1821. He strode off his ship after ignoring a dinner invitation the previous night and literally threw Duncan out of Government House. But he wasn't finished. Somerset also fired the new acting Landros in Grahamstown, who had only just replaced young Henry, and this new Landros was going to lead the settlers into a new era of war and dislocation. By now, the Amatkoza were finding their way back into the neutral zone between the Kat River and the Kaiskama, this 4,000-square-mile area which was described as as fine a portion of ground as is to be found in any part of the world. This was the buffer zone, the DMZ between the Fish River settlers and the Amatkoza, east of the Kaiskama. Nature, as you know, abhors a vacuum, and into this territory would come the Amatkoza and the settlers, ignoring the rule of a zone of buffer. The special rule about the clay pits we've heard about already, but there was another between the Tumi and the Kaiskama. There are stories told by the Amatkoza storytellers that Ingnika sold this territory for a bottle of brandy, but this is an exaggeration. While the chief did like his brandy, the reality was he was unable to do anything when the British told him what they wanted him to do. The proverb used by the Amakosa today goes back to this time, Omasiza Mbulala, those who come to help came to kill, which sums up the situation. Not only did the colony take Ngrika's land, they also tried to make him into the regional policeman. 
Inrika viewed the Tkumi mission station under another reverend called W.R. Thompson as an encroachment on his sovereignty. This was made worse by the fact that the right reverend was also spying on the Amakosa for Lord Charles Somerset. Meanwhile, one of the autonomous Tkosa chiefs called Makoma crossed the Chumi westwards. He began raiding Boer cattle around the Babiance River. We'll get to the gory details in a moment where venerable Tkosa chief Nkunika was forced to dress as a woman and managed to escape from being arrested himself after being accused of complicity in these raids. Most of the 1820 settlers in Albany were now in distress. Their ignorance of farming and the condition of the land, which was so different from England, contributed to their failure. The soils did not support agriculture. The rainfall was irregular. What had led to the situation was bad planning and bad luck. When Somerset had toured the Eastern Cape in 1817 and 1819, he'd been fooled by the verdant landscape. It had been two really good rainy seasons, and the lush land fooled him. Donkin was around for the first crop in 1821, and still remained optimistic despite the first wheat crop, which had been eviscerated by rust. Wet and dry conditions in southern Africa are periodic and occur regularly, and as I mentioned, the years 1816 and 17 were extraordinarily wet. Of the six major drought periods affecting the Eastern Cape through the entire 1800s, one fell between 1820 and 1827, corresponding to the arrival of these new wannabe farmers, the 1820 settlers. Food security becomes a major factor in the movement of people around the subcontinent, and a flood of movement was taking place, which began to accelerate. The settlers, too, were unhappy, to put it mildly. Remember, they'd arrived with the ringing sound of social uprisings in their ears and were used to debating issues. During the 14 months that Lord Charles Somerset had ordered the Amakosa to abandon their pastures and kraals around the Albany district, and particularly close to the Cut River settlement, Makoma, the Amakosa chief, had decided that enough was enough. He defiantly returned to his lands along with his brother Tiali, in Grahamstown, Colonel Wilshire was informed, but made no effort to evict them. The nearby mission station of Cut River by now had a neighbour. Another station had been set up, the Tumi Station, led by John Brownlee, who had resigned from the London Missionary Society after hearing about naughty James Reed's adultery. Brownlee headed off to the Tumi River, where he set up the new mission station in June 1820, joined there by the young Scots priest, William Ritchie Thompson. Because they'd both been sent by the British government, they were in opposition to the LMS, who were what we'd call these days a more radical group. Both Thompson and Brownlee wanted to help the colonial government through control using Christianity and what they regarded as civilization, not through the establishment of a general theocracy independent of the civil government, such as Reed wanted or Philip. The perception now about missionaries is that they were all doing the same thing and all loved colonialism. That's a myth. It was the independent groups that would lead eventually to places like Fort Hare University and struggle leaders like Nelson Mandela in the 20th century. Their ancestors receiving education from the LMS were not like the people being churched by Thompson and Brownlee. Richie Thompson, for example, was feeding wads of intelligence to Colonel Byrd, the colonial secretary back in Cape Town. For anyone, though, who's visited the Tumi Valley, you'll know a few things about the environment there. In a nutshell, it's a beautiful area of the Amatolas, and in fact was Nguinka's favourite valley. For the first few months, all was well, until it wasn't, when things began to unravel at the end of 1820. 
McCormer took a particular dislike to Thompson, and it wasn't long before he was helping himself to the mission station horses. The Marcosa had begun to use horses. They were co-opting the colonial's tools like guns, horses, hemp rope and other technical advances. Thompson had his horses identified and returned. McCormer promptly descended on the mission shortly afterwards and seized 300 head of cattle from the Koikoi and the Amakosa converts living at Tumi Mission Station. These frontier stories are interesting because the intersection between Colonial and Amakosa was both characterized by friction and by trade, sometimes both at once. But this instance was mostly friction, and Thompson asked Wilshire back in Grahamstown to help him retrieve the cattle. Wilshire naturally called in Enrique who, of course, was supposed to be the frontier policeman, and demanded answers about Matkoma's raid. Ingrika said that the Matkosa living at the station were his subjects living on his land, and they were being managed quite well in accordance to Matkosa law. Wilshire and Thompson then conceded that the people living at the mission were Ingrikas, but that while they were physically on the station, they were under government protection, and so the cattle should be returned. Ingrika split the difference, and returned half. Back in Cape Town, Lord Charles observed these goings-on and decided to adopt a stern disciplinarian approach. Thompson suggested that the matter be considered as settled, but Somerset decided Enrique should be shown who was boss, and sent a patrol to seize the Amatkosa chief. A stealthy operation was planned, but the Amatkosa are masters of unveiling stealthy operations. They duly found out about the patrol, and Enrique managed to escape dressed as a woman into the forests of the Amatolas. For those who have not experienced the delights of the Amatolas, it's time to saddle up the hybrid as we draw to a close for this episode, a moment of reflection. By taking on the missionaries of the state and Somerset, Enrique's sons Makoma and Kiali had changed the minds of many Amatosa. He'd been seen as weak before this, and for twenty years had been buffeted by both British and Boer. After his decision to make off into the forests, though, the mysterious and symbolic forests. The old man was back with his people. This was going to cause a shift of support in the Rarabi house, back from Mtlambe to Nika, or to his son Makoma in particular. The power shifted too from the coastal regions near the Indian Ocean mouth of the Kaiskama River into the fastnesses of these natural mountain fortresses. This was an excellent place to conduct guerrilla warfare, and it's into the highlands that the struggle between settler and Amakosa moved. It's where the town of Hogsback is today, and it's misty and mythological. There's a myth, for example, that J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth was dreamed up here when he visited, but that's debatable because he was only three when he left South Africa and had been living in the Orange Free State by then. But the point remains, this is countryside that seeps into your soul. As missionary Henry Dugmore wrote, when he first saw the Amatola Mountains. They are sufficiently lofty to be covered with snow during most of the winter months. Their sides are clothed with noble forests. Streams without number wind their way through rich, fertile valleys. The perpetual verdure, the rich flora, the wildly picturesque views give an untiring interest to this region of beauty and grandeur. When Dr. Philip first spotted these gorgeous slopes, he wrote, Fancy to yourself all the riches and beauty of the finest English scenery spread over the barren mountains, deep valleys, and picturesque ravines of the Scotch Highlands. I do not wonder that the Corsa are cheerful people. Their mountains and valleys are quite inspiring. Everything in this country is divine. 
This area would become known as the Great Winterbach and includes the Stottenberg and remains, by the way, largely unexplored botanically. And as the Amakosa know, worth fighting for. With that, we end this episode. Next week, we'll hear about the developments across Southern Africa in 1821. A quick, broad sweep, if you like. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there, at deslatham. Until next, salagash. Thank you.